Welcome back to the Grow Your Online Fitness Business podcast. And today, in the order of talking points of fitness, we have Justin Connor, who is a chef. <laughs> and the reason that we wanted to bring him on is that he is an absolute ninja who we've been working with to help him package his offer and and scale his his knowledge really. And the reason we want to get him on the podcast is number one, because he's an absolute G. And number two is that there's a lot that you can learn from him in terms of taking your passion, taking your expertise, finding what problems someone who is earlier on in that journey faces and building a solution for that. So Justin, thank you for coming on. You both are legends as well, and I really appreciate you having me on and all the help that you've provided. And happy to share whatever I can with your with your listeners. Just just working with you and speaking to you, like I've learned so much from you, and you've really raised the the standard in terms of seeing what's what's possible with some of these systems. So it's it's really good to see. So I suppose the first very important question is: Would you rather have a five minute three course dinner? Or a five-hour, five-course dinner? I have had five-hour, five-course dinners. I mean, it's not technically five-course. I'll say like seven, seven-course maybe. And if the company is is right, and, and even if it's not, I actually, when I was in culinary school, I was a huge fan of eating alone because nine times out of ten, especially if you're in the industry, people from the restaurant will start to come and talk to you and just out of curiosity, because they think you're a food reviewer. Like they think if you're sitting there by yourself and I would sometimes bring my camera because I was just a a nerd back then. And again, that totally gives off food reviewer vibes. (laughs) And you can actually have a fantastic experience at a restaurant. And and then what's cool is, and I think Tim Ferriss talks about this in 4-Hour Workweek, or maybe it's 4-Hour Chef, when he talks about how to become like a super regular at a restaurant and just get like insane tables and free cocktails sent here and free desserts and whatever preferential treatment he's just like make friends with the staff like just be friendly with the people that are there and i think i could accomplish a lot more in a five hour five course because i'm also not a huge fan of uh, so another fun fact for your audience that's probably too much information i can't burp uh like i physically can't burp and so three courses and what did you say five minutes would be a little uh be, be a little much rapid fire <laughs> that's a very i wouldn't have thought you'd come at it from a networking perspective mm-hmm. but that's uh, that's pretty cool we've, we've actually yeah. seen that happen in real life so i was in a restaurant in london and i can't i can't remember the name of the chef you'll probably know his name it's called like jean paul something or like mm. He's a very famous TV yeah. French chef. Um, I'll find the name and I'll, I'll try and Jean-Paul. edit it into the podcast. What's that? That's a, <laughs> just a very it's a generic very, name. Yeah, it's a very Jean-Paul. generic name. I was just going to well, say that. <laughs> it's, it, is it like, Jean-Paul Gaultier, the French fashion designer? Or is it oh, Jean-Paul no. Sartre, who's a French playwright? No, it can't be Jean-Paul is then. It, is it Jean-Paul it's, Bel- it's a really Belmondo? big name. He's like, he's, he's like Gordon Ramsay level famous. And he was sat on the table next to us. And I didn't know who he was, but my girlfriend was like, oh my God, that's like Pierre, whatever. Or, um, And you could tell the staff were like quite stressed around him. And I'm sure he was just out there to like have a good night, have a good meal. But I had the same experience at a place called, um, oh my goodness, why can't I remember the name? It's, it's a Rick Bayless restaurant in Chicago. And so Rick Bayless is like legendary multiple James Beard award winning chef in Chicago who does a lot of Mexican cuisine. And he had the same thing. My wife now we went to go eat there and 
two tables kitty corner to us was Rick Bayless and his wife sitting and eating, which uh, I haven't heard amazing things about Rick Bayless as like a manager. And I can imagine the staff was just like completely like that, that whole entire night. But we had a, we had a great meal. So from a from a food perspective, you, would you still rather the five? Like it's five courses and five hours. Yes. I, I that's slightly yes. on the threshold of too long, right? Um, yes and no. I, I mean, five hours can be... So what's funny about... There's a... Um, I think it's nine courses. There's a video on my YouTube channel of a restaurant in Australia called Bray. And that was coming up on like four and a half hours. And what's fascinating about a meal like that is by the time you get to dessert, you're starting to get hungry again because <laughs> it's been so long. <laughs> like you're just like God. you're consistently just eating and it, it's a tasting thing right so it's like you're you're trying to eat a variety of different things and that's also like when i talk about i have a really that's actually one of the hardest challenges in menu writing for me now is trying to come up with a three course menu because i just have more options in a five or seven course and it, it's so much more work and and time and and you have to get like obviously increased increased plateware to serve the stuff on but like i just feel like i give the opportunity for more cool tasting experiences like i'm i'm just a huge the the the, the phrase gastronomy has really fallen out of style. I think with our generation, before we turned the mics on, Yusuf was wearing a heel shirt, which is just like the complete opposite of... <laughs> the antithesis. Uh, it's, yeah. it's your, your enemy, isn't it? Yeah. And, <laughs> and, 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 seen the meals. There's nothing wrong. No, I haven't. I haven't. Oh, Justin, don't. No, no, it will, it will, I wouldn't say oh, that. Oh, no. <laughs> it's, it's dry. Yeah. It's dried, like, plant-based things that you uh, should add water to. Uh, but... The, Speaking of which, yeah, we have another question for you. Please. And I, I'm really interested in this one. So we're asking a professional chef here, just for for context. Would you rather, for all the food that you could eat in the rest of your life, rather that it was brown soup, but had the most incredible tastes, or it was sublime textures, but very weak taste? Mm. What a great question, Yusuf. That is a great question. Um, <laughs> I think I would rather have the one that tastes better. I think. And this is only because I have these two frame. Because, man, evaluating food is so hard. It's such a subjective thing. The three of us could go out to dinner and two of us could really enjoy a presentation. One of us through an experience we had in our childhood or a weird genetic thing. I, I'm sure you guys know, like if you have the genetic thing that makes cilantro taste like soap, like this is not going to be a good experience for for one of us at the table if we have that. And so the two metrics that I tried to institute for myself for evaluating food that were as objective as possible is flavor and execution and as I think about, like, where does texture fall in, in either of those, it falls more in the execution side of things. But, yeah, I think we've had that happen potentially with pandemic where you get takeaway food or, or delivery food sent to your place. And by the time it gets to you, it, you know, even if the texture is not all that good, like if the flavors are there, you're still excited to eat that. But if the opposite mm -hmm. was the case... I don't think you would be all that. Like if you well, got some kind of like space age foil wrapped thing to kind of like present your, I don't know, your samosa like perfectly crispy, but like the filling inside was just lackluster. I, I, I have a hard fact, time believing. Yeah. I, I would say pandemic times produced both of those options because uh -huh. if someone had the anosmia from mm -hmm. getting COVID 
and then that's true that's true the, the tasteless version but that's a that's a strong answer mm-hmm. I th- are we not sort of like genetically wired to like crunchy things no we, like we are so there's a great article that maybe you guys can link in the show notes so there's a chef in copenhagen named renee redzepi and he runs a phenomenal restaurant called noma which was like multiple number one best restaurant in the world and he has a very niche ted talk where he talks about crunchy as a specific fl- uh, descriptor for food and why we are so wired to enjoy it. So French fries, peanuts, tempura, chicken wings, like all of these little things. And, and it has something to do with the way that, th- that when it hits your tooth and when you chew on it, it like vibrates through your bones. And you it's actually very satisfying for us as humans. And... Again, super niche. I'm, I'm sure you guys can find it. I, I don't actually even remember the context of it, but it was a rabbit hole that he went down and just completely made a TED Talk style keynote presentation on it because I think he was just so. And this was when he was popping up in Japan. And so he was finding all of these kind of like really cool textures to play with. But yeah, crunchy is that word specifically. And I'm glad you said it is like I learned a lot from that TED Talk because I was like, oh, cool. Yeah, just... and And yeah. They're lovely, aren't they? Crunchy things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like that, I think that's what I. That's the only reason I'm hesitating with the brown soup option. Oh, the brown soup. Yeah. There's ne- never any crunchiness mm-hmm. unless you put crunchy that's bits. True. So you can put that's crunchy true. bits in the brown soup. You stuff. That's I'm sold. I'm in. I'll do that. I'll <laughs> okay. the brown soup. You'd have to like forage for some kind of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's difficult. Tin foil or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad we settled that anyway. <laughs> <laughs> On to. <laughs> Could you tell us a little bit about your your journey, Justin, and, and what you're doing now? I grew up in a 1,500-person town in the Midwest where pizza and wings and burgers was, again, like the high end of gastronomy. There was not a nice restaurant. The place that I first worked at when I was in high school, I basically made the decision that I was going to go to culinary school, and I had a 4.0 my junior year when it was time to go apply for universities. And I was really on the fence about it. And I had a great high school counselor who was just like, well, you could get into these nice schools, but I don't necessarily think that's what you want to do with your career. And cooking just had enough of the, it allowed me to travel. It allowed me to work with my hands. It allowed me to work with people and those kind of like, and it allowed me to be creative, but not be a starving artist. Like I had seen enough examples of there are people who have built food businesses, kind of came up in the Food Network kind of era. I saw that there was like media empire possibilities, not like I set out to to do that explicitly, but um, and it allowed me to get the hell out of that little 1500 person town that I grew up in. And so I uh, my last year of high school, I did half of my day at high school. And then half of my day at a local technical college who had a culinary program. And I don't think I tell that story all that often. But it was because I was like, oh, so gung-ho on. And I had completed all my credits in high school. So I was like, okay, this is, I don't I don't need high school anymore. Let's move on to the next thing, which was culinary school for me. And I worked at a little tiny restaurant. It was me, the head chef, and a dishwasher. That was like my first 
job. And it was, they called themselves a world bistro because we basically had free reign when we did that to do, you know, riffs on Indian food and Italian food and Japanese food and whatever we wanted to do. And so that was a really cool experience. I then went to the Culinary Institute of America, which is in upstate New York. It's like a Hogwarts for food, like <laughs> comically elaborate campus. And, and I say Hogwarts because there's like one distinctive day that I can remember where you just walk in and, and the Christmas decorations are up. And it's like there's wizardry that's happening because the day before there was nothing. And all of a sudden you just walk in. And uh, but, yeah, it, it was cool because that environment was every single person at that university is studying food. It's not something where you go to a university and some people are studying business and some people are studying finance and some people are studying uh, marine biology. Everybody at that school is either a baking student or a pastry student. And then from there, there are bachelor students who are trying to, you know, do culinary arts management and, and stuff like that. And so when I was there, all my kind of uh, colleagues or, or peers were drinking beer and playing video games on the weekends. And I knew that I had one year of school, then we would do a six month externship and then another year of school. And I knew I wanted to get a good externship. And so what I would do instead of hanging out with other college kids is I would take the train down to Manhattan and I would do what's called a stage, which is like a one day. It's kind of like a working interview where you just basically get to spend the day in a kitchen and your the, the, the exchange that's kind of implied is I'm providing free labor. You will let me come and see how everything happens behind the curtain. And so for me, when I knew that I wanted to have a nice fine dining restaurant someday, uh, I Quite truthfully, I wanted to go back to the Midwest and open a three Michelin star restaurant in Chicago. That was the goal that I set for myself. I knew that that was that was my North Star that I was pushing for. And I was like, OK, what what is the what is where's the how am I going to fill this gap between like where I'm at now, where the only experience I have is at this little tiny bistro. And I'm seeing chefs like Grant Ackett's and Farhan Adria and Thomas Keller and uh, Dominique Crenn and, and all these people who are like executing amazing feats of of just leadership and creativity and, and operations and, and all this stuff. And, and I was like, okay, so I need this experience. And so I traded my time for it. Uh, that led to an externship at Per Se, which is Thomas Keller's three Michelin star restaurant in New York, uh, completed my culinary school. And I'm going to bounce quickly now. I went to Chicago to a restaurant called Grace. So I was on the opening. I was the youngest member of that opening team. I was like 19 or 20 years old uh, on that uh, when that restaurant opened and they went on to earn three Michelin stars. They ended up closing because there was a lot of like shady business practices that were happening. And I think a little bit of falling out with the ownership. And so I called my old sous chef from per se, who was going to be the chef de cuisine of the French Laundry. So there's sister restaurants. And I said, hey, I kind of don't like this Grace place. Do you have a job for me? And he was like, come out and stage and we'll see how it goes. And so I I went out, I staged at French Laundry and he offered me a job. So I worked at French Laundry. Um, I had a roommate at the time who was going to wine school and he was looking for his first job at a wine school. Me, this roommate and another guy who was half Norwegian, half American. We all worked at Per Se together. And this Norwegian guy was going to er open his first place in Bergen on the west coast of Norway. And he was like, I need a wine director. He posted on Facebook. My roommate was like, cool, I'm going to go take this job. And I was like, see you, man. Like, maybe I'll come visit you sometime. And after French Laundry, I got pretty burnt out with like working in those high caliber environments. And I was like, OK, let's take some time off. And then I was like, OK, I really want to travel Europe. I can either go 
blow all my savings for a month or I can go work for this Norwegian guy for six months. And that's what I promised him. I was like, I can extend the time because I'll get paid for working with this guy and I can go to Copenhagen and London and Paris and do the European thing. And I stayed for almost three years and I ended up becoming a sous chef after 10 months. And I ended up basically running that kitchen uh, up until I left. And then I moved to Seattle, started doing pop-ups. I'm skipping over like a little bit where I started creating content when I was at that restaurant in Norway because I was watching the kind of like Gary Vee, Casey Neistat. I had five weeks of vacation because I was traveling. And so traveling is the easiest way to get excited about creating content because you have new stuff all the time. And so I would use that experience as like, okay, this is an excuse to get in the editing timeline and watch YouTube tutorials on how to edit. And yeah, so then um, moved to Seattle, started a podcast, uh, started doing pop-ups. And that leads to kind of where I am now, where I'm doing a course for professional chefs um, to increase their performance and it's called total station domination and yeah Great i'm basically name. trying to yeah yeah so i'm i'm, <laughs> I'm building a um, a modern hospitality education company at this point in time because working with you guys like i i really kind of like cracked the nut and pandora's box is open now and now i'm like okay there's there's a way to productize this there's a way to create offerings for specific avatars that help solve their problems and talk about a value discrepancy there's i think that the numbers are between twenty one thousand and sixty five thousand dollars a year is what culinary school costs and you see it happening on instagram posts and twitter threads like the arguments it's 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 not even split like it's very hard to argue that culinary school hospitality school provides that kind of value it's not that it doesn't provide value, but like twenty twenty to sixty thousand dollars worth of value, probably not. And so that's what I'm trying to trying to solve. So is that is the is your course to replace that or is it like a an add-on? So they need that's to go been, there anyway. But then, yeah, yeah. So that's that's what's been fascinating. So I started calling it the Demi Skills course because the whole goal Demi is the French word for half. And the place where that idea started was this is the other half of what they don't teach you in culinary school. And it was this kind of like intriguing thing of like, oh, I wonder what these skills are, blah, 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 blah. And I would have a really interesting mix of students in the cohorts because some were taking it in tandem with culinary school. They were they would literally join the class from their dorm room when classes were out and they would just watch the live sessions with me and do all the exercises and ask questions. And then I would conversely have people who would join the cohorts who were not in, they had never taken culinary school. And so then I started to get these questions of like, oh, well, can you teach me these things that so-and-so in the cohort is talking about from culinary school? Because I didn't go to culinary school, but you did and you know this stuff. So can you teach it to me? And I was like, okay, well, this is really interesting. So I had two choices. I could either continue building Demi skills to be like Demi is getting larger and now it's like this all-encompassing half, quote unquote, or I could kind of like switch everything over to a brand that is much more in line with kind of like teaching skills that, uh, and again, it's it's not something that's genetic. I don't believe that uh, anyone is born this kind of like high-performing chef. I think all of us kind of learn learn these skills. And once you kind of wrap your head around that, where it's like, oh, the only gap here is skills and those skills can be taught, then it becomes something, again, Pandora's box is a little bit open there. And so the goal is to create something where you can almost come to the company's page and 
build your own kind of like program based on, okay, cool. So I, I'm, I'm starting here. Uh, I, I think kitchen fluency, which is kind of like the beginners kind of thing that I'm, that I'm uh, creating is the first place where I want to start. And then as I get to this place where, okay, now I'm starting to be entrusted with the responsibility of running a station. Now total station nomination makes sense for me. And then we get later on and it's like, okay, now team and project management is what I'm constantly thinking about. So maybe there's something that I can also come and find. And it's, 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 it's almost like that just in case information just versus just in time information, uh, that I don't remember who talks about that, but yeah, I, I think that's, that's a much more. And again, it's, it's, I have zero interaction with my culinary school since graduating. But what? how cool would it be if you could continue to have an interaction with the people who are providing your education and you're getting updates on the content, all of the stuff that's happening in cohort-based courses right now? Mm. I think it's just so ripe for... Uh, just I, I don't I don't even want to use disruption because it's like just provide a better alternative that tracks better value to the money that people are spending. Well, it's it's extremely disruptive. <laughs> I mean, you 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 have clearly really been in the trenches. Like even your description of culinary school, I'm like, whoa, okay, you're like you're there for pastry or you're there for bakery or like ignorantly I didn't realize that it went that deep and that specialized so quickly. So I suppose what you're doing is this is a mature product or a semi-mature product by this point, and it's really based on compressing years of experience in culinary school and and cash and everything into something which can get someone a, a serious result. And in the process, it's kind of subtly saying, well, you know what, the ROI on culinary school really isn't that good, but here's how to fast track it. So what what you did, and, and interestingly, you said you started doing the kind of selling the sawdust, making content early on, just as a kind of exercise almost. Um, at what point did you start to say, oh, okay, I'm going to I'm gonna monetize this or I'm going to turn this into a, a content machine and personal brand? I came up through the time when YouTubers would put out content for free and everything's for my audience. And it was almost cool to brag that you were on YouTube social media and you were not monetizing your thing. And that's cool when you have 100,000 subscribers. But the second you hit 500,000, a million, two million, the offers that are coming to you are a little bit too good to turn down. Sorry, guys. That was an awful mute. You managed to... That was so for, very, was for very those listening, Justin managed to simultaneously mute the mic, sneeze, and then return to unmute. And so apologize while he was doing it. <laughs> apologize with the other hand while he was sneezing. Uh, with <laughs> Fantastic. Like just the, <laughs> what I was always fascinated with with those social media creators is that they would get to this place where they would have to apologize to their audience for wanting to monetize the thing. And so I, I, I saw that. I, I observed that behavior and how that video would come out where it would say, hey, we're starting to take on sponsors or we're starting to monetize the community or we're starting to put out merch. And the comment section just ripped them apart. You said you'd never charge us money. You said you'd never monetize this thing. You said this would always be for free. People are so entitled and, with that stuff. Totally, you? totally. And so you, I, you I when I started... Channel just for the, for yep. the shits and giggles. Like, what do you think this is for? Yeah, so yeah. I... But there, there's, a, there's a paradox here. So I got to that place where I was like, okay, well, I, I'm not going to ever 
say that this is explicitly for free. I started a Patreon way earlier. I think I had like 500 subscribers when I started a Patreon. Like I never wanted my audience to think that I was never going to eventually monetize this thing. I never promised that I would never do sponsored content, any anything like that. And but 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 here is a, the issue is that I got to this place where I grew the channel to this place where I was explicitly trying to either get people to pay for a kind of like Patreon style support the creator style thing or sponsorship deals and, and and a little bit of affiliate income. The problem with affiliate income for for chef stuff is that like and I have this because I was going to give you guys some life hacks at the end. Like this spatula is like six ninety nine. $6.99. The affiliate income I get on that is not even close to if I was like to get this like tech YouTubers who do affiliate style businesses and you're, they're making like, you know, $1,300, $2,500, $3,500 purchases like that affiliate income is great. But yeah, it's like unless you can get a million people to buy a spot. Totally, <laughs> totally. And it's like my audience is not that large. And so I was like, OK, I was getting to this place where you go off of the kind of like popular marketer, like passive income, like ways to monetize your content style list. And it's like, OK, uh, sponsored content, Google AdSense. I wasn't getting millions and millions of views, affiliate income. Uh, and then and then there was this one that I that I was looking at and I was like, well, I haven't really tapped that yet. And this was like ebooks, courses, stuff like that. And so I started to look through all of the options, Skillshare, Udemy, Teachable, all of these. Uh, Seth Godin was doing the Alt MBA at the time. And the cool thing was I like I had hours and hours and countless comments of people asking me questions of things that they were struggling with because I was just putting out this content because I was interested in a couple things like keeping my network growing because I wasn't working in restaurants anymore. I was doing pop ups at the time. And so I was getting all these questions and I was like, OK, well, and, and then simultaneously, Tiago Forte and David Perel were just kind of like really getting into it with launching cohort-based courses where they were charging high ticket, they were packing a ton of value in, and they were kind of working in these seasons where they would do like put out a bunch of free content, but it's in service of this larger thing that's super high impact. Uh, it's not just a bunch of videos behind a paywall. And that was part of what I think skyrocketed my progress so much is that um, Alex Hormozzi talks about this idea of like your free stuff being better than other people's paid stuff is actually a huge competitive advantage. And that's what I was effectively doing because I didn't have the knowledge of how to create productized service, create a course. I was just like, let's make a video on the three things that I wish I knew when I was setting up my station when I was a line cook. And it was like, oh, cool. Like uh, uh, these are these are things to keep in mind when you're creating a menu from start to finish. And how, again, as we were talking earlier, layering textures and different flavor uh, uh, nuance and, and all those sorts of things. And so I got to this place where I was like, OK, cool. I can create the valuable content. But do I put everything just behind a paywall and call that the thing? Or does this is there another way to kind of do this? And you guys, again, through talking about creating challenges and um, really nailing in on who your specific avatar is and creating products just for them, like there's a ton of value that came from that process. And now I'm finally in a place where I have this audience and I have a product to offer them. That was the biggest frustration up until probably like 18 months ago, where I was like, I had the audience, but I had nothing to sell them. And, and if I was selling them stuff, quote unquote selling, it was like driving traffic to other people's businesses. 
It was like, hey, go buy this knife, go download this recipe software, whatever. And so that's actually a really good feeling that I've come to now. It's something that I, I wonder about, like every every YouTuber, everyone with a big Instagram following, like they all monetize that audience by selling like something else. Yep. Um, yep. But I suppose like you're in a, a slightly unique situation in the sense that you were you were building an audience that was very specific with a group of people who, as you say, like you'd already identified this problem that they all had, right? Where their training was insufficient and um, that really to, to progress in their career, they needed something else. So it, even even in that, like you were building an audience, but it was almost seems on purpose, I guess, like what you were doing. But it doesn't sound like it was. Like you weren't building that audience to sell them something. You built that audience because you found found it interesting and wanted to make content about it, right? Because you were traveling and there was the opportunity to. Yeah, and it's, talk about like, that's why I think Total Station Nomination being my first quote unquote like big proper product where there's a cohort and there's um, like, it has its own slug on the web page, whatever you say. You say about that. I had I could effectively make a choice when I started creating content because I had this kind of like kitchen management leadership kind of experience. And when you look at any of the brands that start to market online towards chefy kind of the culinary space, they go for that audience, the kind of like the per- the person in the perfectly starched chef coat who has their name monogrammed here and it says sous chef or chef de cuisine underneath their name. Because of course, like in the probably focus groups that they're running, they're saying, oh, everybody has these goals of reaching a management position, which totally makes sense because you get increased responsibility, your resume looks better, there's usually a pay increase that comes with that, you're not actually, you're getting a little bit of time off of your feet, like you're managing a little bit more and you're not so much like in the slog of being on the line. But when you do, I mean, I had the experience in these places where you just do the math on one sous chef manages anywhere from like three to eight line cooks. And so it's like, well, I could go for the one or I could market towards the, like my total addressable market is so much larger if I just market towards the staff, like the like the line cooks, the chef de parties. Like I'm getting a five to eight X increase on my TAM just by going for the people who are, you know, just like in this smaller subsection of the staffing that's already in place at a restaurant. And so that was really interesting to me. But the problem was, it was like, not a lot of disposable income, uh, uh, not a lot of discernment into kind of like, what makes for a good educational culinary product, if it's not a big institutionalized culinary school. And so not to say that there's not a lot to overcome there. But again, if like, if I can just start with a better market and not try to, there's there's another guy who, he's kind of a shady guy, so I don't even really want to bring him up. Bring him up, but he has a he has a concept called Sous Chef Academy, and I could have totally gone with that name because it's like it totally makes sense to try to want to become a sous chef because I'll, I just explained all these benefits that come with it. But why would you not try to go for the? I think the fundamental unit, uh, talking about like the atomic unit of a restaurant, is like the people who are responsible for the individual stations in that restaurant, call them line cooks, whatever. And you see this when a line cook doesn't show up, the sous chef comes 
down in the brigade to work that person's station. That person doesn't end up showing up for work. It's not it's not like a knowledge worker job where Yusef doesn't show up one day and Johnny and I are like, okay, I'll take half of his stuff. You take half of his stuff. It's not like that. Like the sous chef, the manager has to come down and and fit into that position in the brigade because otherwise service isn't going to happen. And so it's a very different kind of um, way, way to work. And so I thought about that and I was like, okay, so what if we created a product for that unit? I think to to check in with what you've done here on a big picture is that you went and got expert experience. You mastered your craft. And you got really good at that. And I think that's something that a lot of people try and skip because they, they want to get to the monetizing part. Um, so you were fucking good at that. And then you were like, right, I'm going to get a result for people. I've, I've identified what are the problems I had when I was going through training and what, what was missing. And you were like, okay, well, I'm just going to make content that caters to that, that helps someone who is a chapter behind me. And... As a result, because you were just authentically doing that, you you built a very relevant audience. Plus, all the other kind of, I guess what what people would call unfair advantages of that you've got you've got charisma, you've got very good production quality, you've got um, a personality that you can bring across into your videos. You're not super kind of clinical and polished, like you said, with the the starched um, chef mm. shirt and everything. And I guess all of this kind of points to the importance of knowing your niche because i think one mistake that a lot of coaches make is that they try and you'll have a 20 the the, the trope of like 25 year old male personal trainer who wants to work with middle-aged single moms because they think that's where the money is and, it, and it's like well if you don't know anything about them then you're never going to be able to create content that's relevant to to appeal to them and you're fighting uphill, whereas you are literally creating for people who, for whom you are one chapter ahead. I had a fascinating conversation with a ex-colleague of mine. We weirdly ran into each other in the back of an Uber here in Seattle, and she transitioned from being a pastry chef to being a circus performer. So she's like, Whoa. does the aerial acrobats wild? Randomly ran into her in an Uber. And I was like, hey, I want to talk to you on my podcast. And I had a question that I posed to her, which was because her and I worked at Grace together in Chicago. And I asked her, I was like, do you remember what I was like at Grace? Because I do not have fond memories of working at that restaurant. Again, like I said, I was the youngest member of that opening team. They almost didn't give me the job because I had effectively zero experience coming out of culinary school. I had wor- I had worked for six months at Per Se for free, and they basically were like, you haven't worked in a restaurant yet. Come back when you have a little bit more experience. This is very cutthroat, like uh, early 2010s, basically, when, it, and when restaurants were just like firing on all cylinders. And she was like, you were always so organized and always so whatever, whatever, whatever. And I was like, that was not my memory of this whole thing. And and that, I think, is to pull on what you said, Yusuf, was, which was like, it's not just that you know how to do the stuff, but you also know what it feels like to suck at doing the stuff. Because that, to my core, like, I, I would get sent home, I would get told that my mise en place sucks, I would get told to do it again, I would get told that, uh, like there's this common thing in chef culture where it's like talk shit on your past experience on your current execution. And so it would be like, 
is is Thomas Keller okay with this? Like, because I came from Thomas Keller and now I'm working here, and it's like so uh, much okay. just kind of like bashing. Dude, of, so savage. It's su- super savage. Group. Totally, totally. And so, and and quite honestly, I didn't do a good enough job when I was initially making content to express that I went through those trials and tribulations. It made me good at what I did, but I never pretensed any of it in the beginning of like, I really sucked at this thing. And so here's why I think that you would benefit from how I talk about this stuff. I uh, immensely empathize. So you, you made it look like you were a natural, basically. Yep, exactly. Uh, exactly. Yeah. And and for better or worse, like that eventually ended up becoming the brand of like, oh, well, Justin has everything buttoned up and together. When in reality, like the reason that I produce the content that I produce, and I'm only comfortable saying this now because I've come full circle with being able to productize it, is the reason I'm doing it is for the Justin that was in 2013 and just got sent home and is questioning his motivations to be in this industry and has no idea how he's going to ever make it to this place of owning a three Michelin star restaurant in Chicago. But there's this great aphorism that like, you don't want Michael Phelps to teach you how to swim because he's just a genetic freak. Like he just has it in his bones that he, he he's good at this thing. You want the guy who, and Tim Ferriss talks about this, you the, want the guy who Japanese previously, swimmer. yeah, who who sucked at swimming, who was afraid of the water, who could barely get himself to get into the ocean, and now all of a sudden he can swim laps for whatever, increase, in, insert the time. And it's like, that's the guy you want to teach. And, and I, I kind of have flipped it to realizing that like, oh, this is actually a strength of mine, is that mm. I know what it feels like to suck. In profession, and I mean, really, just like you are the weakest link in the chain. Like, if this was Survivor, the whole brigade would have voted me off the island. Like, they so bad. I was so bad, and from that place, it was just like stacking skills, under like reviewing the game footage in my head. Like, we don't we didn't tape ourselves, but like, why did you screw up that pickup? Like, why were you not set up on time? What is screwed up about your organization? Why can't you just get it together? And that's a lot of negative self-talk, but it's like it's built itself into this place where I feel like anybody who talks to me who says I'm really struggling in a professional kitchen right now, I have I can just like flip open the playbook and be like, yep, been there. Here's what I did. Here's what helped. um, And just go from there. I want to link that back to something you said before we started recording about your like the course you're making and the feedback you've had. And I can't remember exactly what you said. It was something like the, the insight you get from customers as they're going through the process with you of like what that teaches you to make and this it's something that we teach that a lot of people resist which is this idea of like pre-sell or, or beta launch your product so that you then make the course and the coaching with customers because i think that the problem that everybody has whether they realize it or not which is what you were just describing is like we've all been in the position generally speaking we've all been in the position of like not knowing what something means feeling confused feeling overwhelmed you figure that stuff out, you forget about what it was like to not know that. And then these things start to become obvious and and like second nature. And you try to teach someone who's five years behind where you are. And you're like, well, obviously it's just this. And they're like, whoa, whoa like I, I, I've got no idea. And people try to make products and courses and coaching for people who are more junior than them, thinking that they can remember, but actually there's stuff that gets missed. So can you talk a bit about like, well, expand on that point. So you, you're saying clients and customers are giving you feedback what are they telling you like what are you learning from this process of building stuff with customers 
a lot of it starts with where they're approaching the program from. So ha have they had a formalized culinary education? Are they the person who is what I call like the lurker? Because I was totally that person where I was, again, I, I went to a culinary school in high school before I had any formalized kitchen experience. So I have been that person where you're just kind of like hoarding information because I will use this hollandaise recipe someday. I don't know when, <laughs> but it's like I'm told that this is a mother sauce and I should have this, blah, blah, blah. And or like it's an important French sauce. And that's an important place to start because ultimately that dictates kind of like where the questions are going to come from because because that that will set kind of like what have they heard and and part of it is potentially unworking bad habits like i had a student in the in the last cohort who was like oh i went to this culinary school and it was a trade it was a trade school up in canada and he was like oh for our practical exams they teach us to write our prep lists like this and i was like no, no, no. Like, like what? Here's why that doesn't work. Because I had to do the same thing when I was in culinary school. And we can dig into it later if you want. But it was like, it was this frustrating, unworking process of, again, asking, why are you, and, and, and value for your audience here, distill down what you're teaching into like, what are the core pillars of this thing? Because I feel like a lot of people get messed up in kind of like the the painting on the pillars at the end, and like this is the this is the thing that I'm going to teach. But if you can get it, if you can distill it all the way down, and and that's why um, I think I was working with Alex to land on the name of the Demi Skills course. And the reason that we landed on that is because it was like as I was creating the the material, I was constantly asking myself, what's the skill here? Don't just tell a story. Don't just reference an anecdote. Don't just talk about a tactic like what's the genuine skill here that you're trying to develop and then you can ultimately build some some material around that but as i'm getting questions that's why i think doing a cohort based or maybe a coaching based one-on-one -on -one to one or, or one to many maybe approach where you actually can get that real-time feedback of what what are the questions that people are asking in that beta stage is so so helpful because you start to see where people lose interest you start to see where people become unclear. You start to see where, you know, things don't get talked about in your student community. And then it becomes something where it's like, oh, well, we need to either reword this or this isn't coming across right. Or to your point, Johnny, like I'm two rungs on the ladder above this person where I don't know what they're seeing down here. And I'm not I'm not distilling it. In, like I'm, I haven't gotten to the core of it yet. And that creative challenge for me of like looking at all my slides and all my material and being like is there a skill here have you gotten this down to the skill yet or are you just talking about the kind of like the technique or the last mile part of the thing that you're trying to teach and you haven't actually distilled this down into a skill yet and mm. that name for me was really helpful um but yeah talking about getting building with the students that's what ultimately, and, and I dug myself a hole with launching this as the Demi Skills and then getting to this place where it started to balloon and I was like, okay, I have to take this back and pare it down. But ultimately that helps me now because now I have the freedom to kind of, you know, branch out and, and do do a bigger suite of products for, for customers. Um, but yeah, understanding where they're, where they're approaching the program from, what are potential bad habits they have to erase, 
And then have you done a good enough job of getting your material down to the studs and really understanding, okay, this is stable enough to build on top of. And then we can do the downloadable assets and the exercises and the case studies and the whatever based on this core idea. And anytime that I haven't done that well enough, it's really bitten me. So that's, that's, yeah. that's what I'm learning. I'm really glad you mentioned that as well, because we've got the journey from you've been through it at the time, I imagine culinary school just feels like you're just being dropped into like a deep water and just trying to paddle and not really, you know, just trying to um, drink from a fire hose. Then you understand the problems and then you understand, okay, what are the, where are these problems coming from? And probably in, with certain audiences, they want the tactic and they don't really want the strategy, but they don't realize that the tactic's not going to solve their problem. And we always always have this problem where, you know, people will get in touch with us and be like, oh, what's the software that you're using for this? Or what, like, Honestly, it doesn't matter what the software is or what, you know, because if you haven't got a reliable mechanism to generate leads, then you're pissing in the wind, you're wasting your time. So, you you know, what you've done there is you've developed conceptual integrity from just from pure experience of understanding what are the key driving principles, what are the, the pillars of my methods. <clears throat> and then these strategies, rather than tactics, the kind of long-term big picture strategies are stuff that you share in a sequenced format in your paid program when people have bought into it they're like right i'm going to sit down i'm going to do the work and it, it's difficult because you that's the stuff behind the paywall and you're not hiding it but it's that if you try and share that stuff on the front end in your on your instagram or on your youtube people's attention spans are too short people aren't problem aware enough to realize that they actually need strategies more than tactics and everyone's looking for the the hack so from a content creation perspective i guess you've got to shake your booty and do what the the algorithm wants but then at the end say right you got some value from this however i'm afraid this little tactic isn't really going to solve your deep problems it's it's the surface level stuff um can you talk to us about i guess reconciling those two and how you picked a platform because it seems like you you went full in on youtube which as far as we're concerned, is like the hardest platform to grow out of uh, out of everything. YouTube, I have this call it a character flaw, but it's actually served me well, and and I'm I'm less apologetic about it now. But seeking out hard things because you can continue, to, you won't get quick success on them. I love it. Like I have a whole video on the channel where I tried to learn how to plate with something called a morabashi chopstick. It's a very long metal tipped chopstick. And a lot of chefs and fine dining restaurants use tweezers to, to, plate, to plate because you can be precise and, and it kind of actually slows you down, which is actually kind of good because you're not just like haphazardly throwing things on the plate. You slow down and you more intentionally. Morabashis take years to understand how to master. Same thing with like asymmetric bevels on your knife where it's not just a clean 50-50 edge. You do like an asymmetric ratio. So you have 80% of the edge on one side and 20% of the edge on the other side. I can't believe how and deep the, all this stuff goes. Yeah, totally, I mean, totally. And, <laughs> but, but like <laughs> find the hard thing 
and make so I I, I grew up uh, playing tennis. I'm going down a bit of a tangent here, but I, I grew up playing tennis and there's this thing with racket head size. And so if you have a hundred and five square inch head size, that is like a trampoline. Like anything that you swing at that thing, like it's gonna go back over the other edge. You don't have to uh, the other side, you don't have to generate that much power, like you don't have to actually have that much finesse. Roger Federer's racket head size is 90. And so it's so much smaller because it's that much more difficult. You have to generate all the power yourself, but it allows you to be incredibly precise with your shots. Um, he has great net game because of that racket that he uses. It's just the reason people don't use a 90 square inch head racket, racket head size is because it's so hard to get good at using that piece of equipment. And so I would always so like the racket head that I play with now is a ninety three or something like that. I love That's kind of the principle of hard stuff. Training. Totally, totally. Like I love hard stuff because if you can get good at the hard stuff, it will ultimately serve you in good times and in bad times. There's a. I'm going to do one more quick anecdote and then I'll I'll, I'll answer your question. There's a guy that I worked with at per se named Anthony Yang, and he was the roast station chef de partie. So he was in charge of the ducks and the pork racks and, and the Wagyu beef and, and all of it's It's a very intense station because you have to nail temperatures on cooking protein 90 times out of a, a, in a night across the three dishes you have on your menu. So that's 270 times you have to nail temperature oh, high every single night out of the week. And so he... I was working with him one day and he I was doing some prep for his station and he looked over at me and he said you know what's the difference what 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 was the quote he was like you know what's the difference between us cuz we were at per se everybody has to wear black pants and black shoes and you all get a, a chef coat that says per se on the side and you're all wearing your blue apron and we're all in the uniforms and he's like you know what's the difference between us and the guys that wear chili pepper pants and I was like, what? And he's like, we can always go there. They can't always come work here. And that really stuck with me of like, if you seek out the hard stuff and you get really good at the, this is this is too difficult. The uh, algorithm is too hard. I have to learn how to do video editing. I have to learn how to do titles and thumbnails. I have to buy a bunch of lighting equipment. Like if you get good there, so like now we can have conversations of like my production assistant and I can talk about like, okay, let's finally start to think about doing TikTok stuff because we've done the hard stuff already. And that's like the going, and it's not like TikTok, like TikTok is growing into a behemoth and Yusuf, you and I have talked about TikTok is still a hard nut to crack, mm -hmm. but it's like, if you can get good at the hard stuff, when it comes to the like little tactical, like the easy win kind of stuff, it's going to feel easy because Again, you're just talk, call it like progressive overload kind of stuff. Like you've you've been so used to, and anybody who's trained like this, where you're doing like five rep sets and you're just doing like real close to your one rep max on whatever you're doing, and then all of a sudden you switch to a more volume based kind of thing and you're doing like 20, 20 rep sets. So it's like it just feels max. But, yeah, it just yeah. feels easier. And so I would always kind of like seek out those types of things and it served me well. And so like if anybody's listening and, and wants like that's potentially befuddles your excuse. I think that's a, that that will that will serve you. But YouTube as a platform, it just had staying power. Like it just I was asking myself in 2015, am I too late for YouTube? 
and that's a common trope. Like people will ask now, like, am I too late for whatever? And certain platforms certainly have that. But I think YouTube, the Lindy effect is just too strong with it at this point in time. Like it's just, it's, it's, it's so powerful with search. Uh, it's, it's, it's still like, I'm part of a YouTube beta testing program thing. And they like, they send me uh, surveys and, and they, I get on the phone with YouTube and they show me what new features are. And they're trying to get this thing rolled out, which is like content recommendations. This is, this is posted on YouTube studio. So it's, uh, my NDA is not violated here, <laughs> but they, they're, they're trying to get like, okay, people are searching for this idea and there's no content for it. So this is an underserved search query. Oh, I've seen that. Yeah. Yeah. So like you need to, we need more content. Like it, it's still so open. Like there, there, it's still, there's still room for, for, Ooh. for any of this stuff. So what, uh, the thing that blew my mind, and I, I guess like you, you've picked a platform that has literally bil- like billions and billions of people on it, where like the thing that you, cause uh, how many subscribers are you at now? I'm almost at 30,000. 30, okay, 30,000 subscribers. And if I didn't, if I hadn't seen your subscriber base and I just saw like, hey, I'm Justin, I teach the the demi skills, the kind of meta skills for people who are trying to accelerate their career in fine dining restaurants, I'd be like, whoa, that's a bit niche. Um, mm-hmm. Is there going to be enough people to, and you've got mm-hmm. 30,000 highly engaged. It's not, you know, it's not even like one of these bloated 30,000 channels. It's like the engagement on each of your videos is so high relative to the size of the channel. Mm-hmm that like you're like whoa actually like it's a big enough platform for that to be the case and then as you say you've got the the long um long-term benefit of creating something that then gets picked up on search and browse and everything else because any anything that you're going to do so i i did like film photography in high school and being using a camera was very easy uh, for me I, i just naturally took to it and in a weird way i actually enjoy video editing a lot because it it mirrors cooking in some way, shape or form, where it's like you get your raw product and you do a little bit of processing to it mm. and then you get to share it with people at the end. Like it, it, I, I draw a lot of similarities there, but there's a who talks about this, the kind of like I'm bringing up Tim again, but it's like if you can do an endeavor where even if you fail, you come out the other side with skills that you can use in other things, it ends up ultimately being a good decision to make. Video editing for me was that it was like, okay, I'm seeing all this success that people have. I I basically thought like, even if this flops, I will open a restaurant that will have a video component to it because I've learned these skills and I will know how to evaluate someone's performance. That is a video editor for me on the other side, even if this is and talk about any of us who have tried social media content creation. It's like, that's where you get stuck. Like if you can understand how to video edit, Mm. putting a filter on a photo or adding text to a graphic, it's like, that's all part of it. Like they're all nested under video editing. So it's like, you can learn video editing. Exactly. What's that that one with um, like Salt Bay and the the steaks and, you know. Uh, uh, Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm sure from a culinary perspective, you're like, but but their video marketing is really good. So. There it is. Talk about getting too successful too fast. I went to his restaurant in Dubai before he was Salt Bay. So he was, <laughs> I don't remember what his, he was just new, the chef of Nusret. And 
that was such a funny meal because I I was taking kind of video, but I did the thing where um, I was already recording and they started slicing the steak and I pressed what I thought was record and I turned the recording off <laughs> during when he was cutting the steak and when we were eating it. So funny. We were so pissed because we spent like $450 on a single steak. It was my best oh, friend and I. And yeah, super bad. But he really struggled because he got so big on social media through the content that he was creating. And if you look at any of the reviews of a new threat, whether it's in Dubai or he opened one up in New York, um, horrible, horrible reviews, like just not operationally sound at all. But he knew how to create flashy content. And now you see any of the TikTok food creators and they're slapping meat and throwing Wagyu around. It's, it's <laughs> wild. But yeah. Goodness me. Um, this has been a proper ride. So thank you for Thanks, talking Alex. us through this. I think this is uh, certainly inspiration to anyone who might think that their niche is too small or um, want, doesn't know where to, where to start in terms of taking their knowledge and expertise and turning it into a product. Have you got any advice for other people who are kind of going down this route? I think it comes down to really identifying what's the problem that I'm trying to solve. Like, can you articulate that? And for me, that was really difficult because to your point, it seems a little niche. It seems a little bit just like esoteric, but can you distill it down to I, and there's like a templated sentence that you can maybe create for yourself where it's like, I blank for blank in blank. So like the, and the last one is time. So it's like, who's your avatar? Really clearly articulate the problem. And then there's a time element. So we have, we had five modules for the Demi Skills course. So it was five weeks worth of content. Now with Total Station Nomination, we've distilled it down into three weeks. And it's like, again, I, I hate to keep plugging Hormozy again, but like he's provided a ton of awesome content and value. And he talks about like part of his value equation is time. And so it's like, how quickly are you going to deliver this information? Because a lot of us probably fall in this trap of, oh, I need to have on the landing page that it's 18 hours of supplemental bonus content or, mm. you know, 17 modules of whatever, whatever, whatever. And in what other world do you go to a YouTube video and someone's like, well, I'm going to give you the thing, but you have to watch my seven video series in order to finally get to the nugget of the, the idea. It's like, no, like, give it to me quickly. Like, give it, give it to me in an expedite, like, and, and if you can answer that question, then it's ultimately just a question of, do you have the skill set or the ability to delegate this out to somebody else to build this, whether it's an app or a video series or a audio thing or an ebook, or, or do you have the skills to ultimately create a product based on this thing? But I wish I would have done that sooner. The identify what the actual problem is that you're trying to solve here, because that's what I got to with Total Station Nomination was like, oh, well, what I'm really, I, I had so many subtitles, man, of this of this course. I was like, oh, well, it's going to be called Adaptive Kitchen Productivity, and I'm going to be the kitchen productivity guy, and I'm going to teach everybody about how to be adaptable, and blah, 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 blah. And it's well, like... The fact that you tested so many titles means that yeah. you're thinking so deeply about the problem. Yep. Because there's a great 
focus group of 30,000 people that I have the luxury or the privilege of being able to, to market to. But if that was all I was potentially going after, that's not enough. Like it, it just run the numbers on what your funnel is going to look like. And that's just not going to be enough people to, to over time. Like if I want to do this for five, 10 years, that's not enough people. And so does this as we're kind of like getting overwhelmed with kind of like the content that we're all able to scroll through these days, like, does this actually make someone stop and say, oh, cool, like th this is interesting, like this is something that's for me. And getting that sentence, I also had the luxury of like, I had put out a piece of content on uh, Total Station Domination two, three years ago, because it's a it's a thing that one of my best friends who I worked with picked up from a three Michelin restaurant in uh, in three Michelin star restaurant in, Chica in California that he worked at. And one of his coworkers would say that right before service. So it was like, he'd look at his station super set up and he'd be like, oh, TSD, like total station domination. And I made a video about it and it kind of took off. It's not like one of my highest performing videos on the channel, but I got to this place where I would have people message me and be like, thank you so much for the content that you've put out. This has really helped me in my career, blah, 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 blah. And what maybe some of your listeners can take away from this is not me flexing that that happens to me. It's I would follow up with what's been most helpful. Like, thank you so much for saying that. But I'm curious of all the content that I've put out there, what actually is stuck with you? Mm -hmm. And over time, over time, over time, everybody just I did a whole Instagram story on this the other day. People are just saying TSD, like TSD stuck with me, like this concept of perfect organization you're going to war with bullets. Everything is perfectly in order. All your little trays are nulled and just like perfect, like, you know, layout is is superb. And I was like, oh, well, that's maybe, maybe, I just, yeah, maybe I should just call it that because <laughs> that's ultimately like what I'm talking about. So, Amazing. yeah, yeah. Well, that makes sense. How do we find out more about you? If so someone... the modern hospitality company is called Repertoire. And that's based on, oh, I have it, but it's kind of buried under some other books. There's an old French book called Le Repertoire de la Cuisine. And it's a 250-page book, but the subtitle of the, of the cover says that there's 5,000 recipes in those 250 pages. And the reason it's, it's laid out like that is because every recipe is not one onion, one shallot, one whatever. It's just a sentence. So it will say something to the effect of hollandaise and then a hyphen. And then it says clarified butter emulsified with egg yolks and vinegar and whatever. And so it's a reference book for people. And so it's understood that you have a well-developed repertoire to use that book. And so that's ultimately what I'm trying to push for is to get a bunch of hospitality creators to a place where they just have a good repertoire of skills that I've taught them over time, over products, over um, what have you. And so the, the website's called joinrepertoire.com. I'm on almost all platforms at Justin Kana. Uh, you guys will probably have it linked in the show notes. And sure. uh, yeah, just get in touch with me on Twitter. I have justinkana.com. I don't think there's a contact form there because I'd just prefer for you to email me or Twitter DM me or Instagram DM me. Uh, and yeah, I just really appreciate what you two have built and the help and services that you provide to coaches and freelancers and creative people who are trying to productize what they know. And 
yeah, again, I wouldn't I wouldn't have built what I've built so far without your guys' help. So thank thank you both. Well, oh, thanks, thanks man. man. You you smashed it. You you brought the you brought the goods. So that is great to see. Um, the final thing I wanted to ask you, you've probably seen it, but there's a film called Boiling Point. Mm-hmm. Have you watched it? Is that the Bradley Cooper one? Oh, Stephen Graham. Boiling Point. British film. Oh, it's very uh, like niche, this just came quite out. niche British, British cinema. So yeah, this, this just it. came out. I don't think I have seen this. Justin, I, oh. you must watch this film. Oh, this is, uh, what's his face? No, it's not. Okay, hang on. I'm going to basically gonna open this. Just for people listening, it's saying yeah. it's filmed in a single take and it's a 90 minute film about a shift in a restaurant on opening night and the Oof. food standards hygiene, hygiene agency come and do an inspection and then there's someone might have an allergy and then there's like all these things and, and it's like someone doesn't turn up for work and, and it's it's all complete. There's no cuts. It's all filmed on like one. So like as you're watching it, you feel stressed for the cameraman, for the sound guy and everything. Um, but also it's just, I mean, I've never worked in the kitchen, but it, it felt like working in a hospital. It felt like working in accident and emergency. Um, so I, I would love to hear your thoughts on uh, on how you feel about watching that film. If you're I, feeling... I need to do like a reacts video. Like I yeah, just 100%. Need to do like a, that, would, like a, that would be great. That'd be perfect. That, that's why, and, and I have a friend who actually bashed my tagline that I had for myself for a while, which was, I help chefs perform better. That was kind of the tagline that I that I set. And the reason that I use the word perform is, again, because I see more similarities with chefs, with musicians and athletes than I do with creatives. And to your point about that movie, it's not about being able to make a sauce for one single person or make it for the chef de cuisine to taste on your station. It's about on that night when you've just opened and there's a critic on table 13 and the health department's there and your station partner didn't show up for work today and the chef de cuisine didn't get enough sleep the night before and his wife told him some backhanded comment that he's come into work pissed off about. (laughs) Totally, totally. Like, that's when it matters. Like, that's when you want to be able to perform. And a lot of chefs anybody like anybody who works in a in a high stress environment like you get really good at the tuesday at 3 p.m where it's like there's no stress there's nothing matters but it's like if you can pull it through in that moment in that night like those are make or break moments like those are the things that like the, the in in the multiverse like that's the crossroads where it's like you're either going to get the glowing five-star review and like Th- thomas keller's success in the U.S. market, it would have come eventually. But a lot of people point it back to one meal that one food writer had from the San Francisco Chronicle. Her name was Ruth Reichel, and she had a meal at the French Laundry where she wrote, this is the most exciting restaurant to eat at in the U.S. And that catapulted everything. And so it's like there was something that happened in that kitchen on that day where a performance happened, like high performance. And so it's like that's what you're trying to optimize for is performing better. It's not necessarily like any of these, again, talking about tactical stuff, but that's why I would really lean into that phrase because I'm so Mm. obsessed with that idea of perform. Like it's such a good mental model of Mm -hmm. if you can get your one rep max up as high as possible, then Tuesday at 3 p.m. is such a low percentage of your max that 
Yeah. Definitely. Why would you even be stressed? Yeah. 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 So amazing. Anyways, Justin, it's been a pleasure. Likewise. Thank you both. And thanks for coming we'll on. Talk soon. Yeah. Thank you. Want to learn more about the systems we use to run, build, and scale propanefitness.com? Head over to propanefitness.com forward slash business podcast and you can get your hands on our free training that covers the seven steps that we take with every client that we help build their own online business and also the seven steps that we use to successfully build Propane Fitness. We walk through the sales systems, the delivery systems, follow-up, remarketing, how to basically build your program so that it delivers coaching to your clients without you being there 24-7. We really do cover the full thing, right? And if you want to continue even further and potentially work with us, there's a chance to book in a call to have an informal chat with Yusuf or I to just basically see if any of our programs would be a fit to help you get from where you are to where you want to get to. So go to propanefitness.com forward slash business podcast today and get access to that. If you'd like to learn just more about Yusuf and I, more about us, what we do, follow us on the various channels, the best place to go is our YouTube channel. We have a load of stuff from fitness content, productivity content, why Yusuf slept on the floor for several months, why he's been having cold showers. There's always stuff on there that's entertaining and hopefully informative. So just go to YouTube, search for Propane Fitness, and you can find out a bit more about us there as well. Speak to you on the next episode.